and welcome to another edition of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy, Tim Britton, our 61st episode. We have named it for Levon Hernandez, who made a handful of starts for the Mets back in 2009. Again, this is where we are as far as the numbers go. Now, this is kind of 61.2 because Tim and I did record an episode on Monday night that was to drop Tuesday morning. In that episode... I talked about, wow, Tim, everything's going swimmingly for the New York Mets. And then Tim said, yes, what could possibly go wrong for the New York Mets? And then an hour after we recorded came the Michael Conforto news. And so that episode will not see the light of day. If you want to blame us for the big jinx, I guess you can, but you don't have any audio proof of it. So, Uh, but as far as the Mets go, Tim, I, I mean, let's get right into Michael Conforto, what exactly do we know about this situation with his oblique? Right, so it's a, it is a right oblique strain. He suffered it on Saturday. Uh, there was that, a play, I think it was to end like the fourth inning or something, fourth or fifth inning, uh, where you know he was coming in on kind of a windblown fly ball, made like a little awkward catch of it, uh, and just felt a tweak in that side. You know, this is an injury that hitters really dislike because it's it takes a lot of patience to get over. Uh, there's often some starts and stops in your rehab with it, uh, and it always takes a little bit longer than you think it's going to. So I think the, the key for the Mets here, they haven't put any kind of timetable on it. They haven't said anything about the severity of it. They've only said that Conforto is going to be backed off of baseball activities. It didn't quite say shut down, but backed off, which I think essentially means the same thing. He's not going to be swinging a bat or anything like that in the next week. Uh, for a week and then reevaluate him at that point. I think, you know, he's got the baseline of at bats now that if he's, if he feels totally healthy, he could play on opening day. But I'd be surprised if he's available on opening day because this is an injury. Todd Frazier had it last year. He had it early in spring training before games and he didn't come back until uh, April 22nd, I think it was. You know, I don't know if that was more severe or what, but uh, these are injuries where it really does seem like taking your time with it is the best course. Uh, to, to take uh, and we'll see if the Mets kind of follow that along with a guy who two years ago said a lot of his his issues during the season were because he came back too early and nobody needs a, a lingering injury all season long which is what you're trying to avoid in this kind of situation now going back to how Conforto hurt it I, I was watching that game on television I saw the play I didn't notice Conforto grimace or anything that looked uncomfortable other than the fact that the ball was blowing around and the sun was bothering him. But I did see a play, I guess it was a day or two earlier, where he went to rob a home run, slammed against the wall with his side. The glove went over the wall and he had to go retrieve it, which is maybe why some people might remember that play. But I was more concerned with that and him slamming his side into the wall than a ball where you had to make an adjustment on and make a bit of a diving catch. And yet, I, I, who knows, maybe one leads to the other, but one play certainly looked more dangerous than the other. And here we go. It's the second one that ends up costing him time here. Yeah, there was actually, there was the, the one you mentioned. There was another play where he went pretty aggressively into the wall trying to catch a, a ball that went over the fence. <coughs> uh, but with both of those, uh, you know, it's his left side going in, and this is a right side injury. Hmm. So and even the, the the play that you know the Mets are saying he hurt it on uh, doesn't look you know he's reaching out with his glove no. on the on the left hand it doesn't seem like it would be something that really uh, w- would lead to that long of an absence but you know obliques are weird things I don't know you know for a left-handed hitter I don't know whether it's better or worse that it's the the right side the front side with Frazier it was the right side for a right-handed hitter I don't know 
the difference in, in how that may linger or affect his swing for a little bit. Uh, so there's a lot of unknown around the injury. I would just say that you know we're we're basically two weeks away from opening day. Uh, that's not a lot of time to to come back from this and, and get a couple of hacks in before you you step into the box against Max Scherzer. Yeah, no, that is uh, not ideal if you're feeling anything, any kind of grimace, and then he pulls a string on you with the changeup. You swing, you think you're going to make contact, nothing's there, and you're trying to pull it back, and that's where sometimes you see these things kind of pop up initially, not the case here, or uh, be exacerbated. So, look, th there's a lot of reason for Michael Conforto to be careful with this injury, as we've uh, established a little bit here. So if you start to think that maybe Michael Conforto does miss some time in the regular season, it certainly appears you want is not going to be ready for opening day. What does this outfield start to look like with the Mets dealing with their first injury to a position player really here in spring training, or new injury, I should say? Yeah, I, I think we saw... Uh, I believe it was on Monday that the lineup that the Mets put out in Jupiter that had uh, J.D. Davis. Uh, actually, I don't remember if Davis was there, but, but, but you know, Davis in left field still is, is seems like the primary option there. Uh, and then maybe Jake Marisnik in center field with Brandon Nimmo moving over to right field. Uh, that, you know, you strengthen the defense a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it'd be really difficult. You know, they, they've got some other options. They could move Jeff McNeil to right field. He played that a fair amount last year. Maybe move Davis into third base, put Dom Smith in left field. <coughs> I think that really uh, limits your defensive capabilities on the left side of the field. You know, I wrote about Eduardo Nunez this week. Uh, he's a guy who, who's impressing in camp. Maybe, you know, he's got some experience at third base. Maybe you play him at third base with Davis in left field and McNeil in right field. That's an option for some days. But I think the primary one that they would look at is Jake Marisnik in center, Nimmo in right. You know, you still have Davis slash Smith in left. McNeil kind of concentrate on third. We haven't seen him in the outfield at all, and I wonder if that might change in the coming days. Uh, but I think that's probably uh, what they what they fall back on at this point. Hearing those two options, I'd much rather see Marisnik start in center field than to have both J.D. Davis at third base, where he looked miserable last year, and then Dom Smith at left field, where you're hoping there is some improvement as he gets more reps out there. But the combination of those two, I mean, that kills your defense and if you could give it a little plus defensively, it costs you a little bit at the bottom of the lineup, so be it, right? Marisnik would hit eight. You could bump Ahmed Rosario up a spot, and I still think the Mets have enough in that lineup that they could get by. I, I suppose if you start to think about a lineup without Conforto in the middle, maybe Robinson Cano becomes more important as a left-handed bat who's going to be thrust into some big RBI situations, you got to think. Uh, if you start to think about how this lineup looks offensively without Conforto. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the lineup the last last podcast, uh, and I, I think the lineup is better constructed right now to handle the absence of a player like Conforto than the, the Mets defensively are equipped to handle his absence. Uh, if they, you know, if they tried to go, you know, I would rather strengthen the defense in that situation than, than keep the lineup strong by putting Smith in there and, and rearranging that way. Um, yeah, I, I think... It, you know, it's tough to find a spot. If, if everyone's healthy, it's tough to hit Cano really above sixth or even seventh in that lineup on a regular basis. If Conforto is, is out for any period of time, that kind of creates more of a left-right balance for the roster because you'd probably be replacing him with Marisnik, a right-handed hitter, again, at the bottom of the lineup. So then you imagine, okay, maybe it's it's you bump J.D. Davis up to third or you have Cano hitting fourth behind him or and Wilson Ramos fifth, something like that. Uh, you can play around with it a little bit, a little bit more. Maybe you decide to go with Nimmo leading off uh, in front of Alonzo and McNeil in some order. 
Uh, there are different ways to play around with it that the lineup would still be pretty good and relatively deep, uh, even if you have Marisnik there hitting eighth. I did enjoy your story on what the Mets could do with their lineup, and you had Robinson Cano hitting eighth against left-handed pitching. And based on what Cano did last year, I agree with you. And he would be the the worst left-handed hitter on the team. He struggled against left-handed pitching a year ago. I think we both realized there's no way in hell that happens, at least not initially this year. But again, it all goes to the challenge for Luis Rojas, his first-year manager. And we've talked about potentially benching Robinson Cano later in the year if you have better options. And it becomes clear after a couple of months that Cano isn't getting the job done. But even initially, you have a really strong argument to drop Cano significantly in the lineup in a way that Maybe you don't worry about impacting his confidence much, but you certainly would injure his pride if you were hitting him in the lower third of the lineup. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who has not hit in the lower third of the lineup this decade. Well, I should say last decade. We're in a new decade. He's gone, you know, he hit seventh. The last time he hit seventh or lower was 2009. Uh, so it's been a while. You know, the only the only times he's hit sixth or lower in that stretch was last year for two games. So, uh, you know, this is new territory for him. Uh, but when you look at it against right-handed hitters, you know, what, what I wrote in that story, you know, I like the idea, the idea of Jeff McNeil leading off. I like starting a lineup with your best hitters, so McNeil and Alonzo. Uh, and then I, you know, I think Brandon Nimmo fits higher than Cano in an order because he's been a better hitter recently uh, and, you know, can act as kind of a second leadoff hitter for the second half of the lineup. And that, you know, if you want left-right balance, because the Mets have, you know, three of their five best hitters as lefties, that leads to Cano hitting seventh most of the time against righties. And then against lefties, you know, it's last year, yes, I think the OPS was 550 or 570 for, for Cano against lefties. Uh, I think the thing that's more concerning, I wouldn't expect it to be that low this year, but uh, if you look at what his numbers are really for eight years against lefties since 2012, I think his OPS is about 714 against left-handed pitching, which is not terrible. You know, Conforto last year was at 701 against left-handed pitching, but when you look at the rest of the lineup around him, you have four right-handed hitters in Alonzo, Davis, Ramos, and Rosario who each OPS like 890 against lefties. So, you know, you you would want those guys batting ahead of Robinson Cano against left-handed pitching. Uh, so it just, you know, it ends up with him getting stuck at the bottom of it, which, you know, is a strength of this lineup. If Robinson Cano is hitting eighth for you, that's not necessarily like, oh man, look how far Cano has fallen. It's look how good the rest of the lineup is. And that's really, sure. the, I think, that's the selling point if you're Louis, Louis Rojas that you have to try to make to a good guy luck. if you wanted to actually put this into action. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that is... A challenge for for a first year manager. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Cano, based on what he's done statistically, is on a Hall of Fame track, and you're going to convince him, hey, you can hit eighth. Uh, the lineup around you is just so great, and you know it's a middle the road kind of offensive team. At least it has been in the past. See if there are some pieces to be excited about here. Now, the other part with the lineup, and I know we've debated this uh, a little bit. I'm going to steer it in a different direction, but I, I've said I like Brandon Nimmo at the top. Now, I. I not so respectfully disagree with your argument that Nimmo should hit lower in the lineup and just put McNeil and Alonzo at the top. Um, I hate the idea of Brandon Nimmo up in RBI situations. To me, that's where the low average does hurt him. He does one thing well. He gets on base and me put him at the top of the lineup. But what I'll ask you, Tim, is, is there an argument to be made that maybe Nimmo could hit ninth 
with that being his strength, if you just want to maximize the plate appearances for the Mets' best hitters, and I agree with you, Brandon Nimmo is not in that top three, but if you want to play to his strengths, would you consider batting him nine in behind the pitcher? Uh, I wouldn't just because he's too good a hitter to not bat on that much. You know, like the difference between let me let me try to look up because I, I had the numbers on this. The difference between batting first and batting ninth over the course of a season in terms of plate appearances, you know, you're going to bat 140 fewer times. Uh, that's a lot. That's you know, it's basically one appearance per game from first night. Even if we're talking about I've had Nimmo hitting fifth, the difference between fifth and ninth is 75 plate appearances a season. And I, I don't yeah, but want he's useless Brandon with Nimmo. men on base. I don't want him up with men on base. I don't I don't think he's useless with men on base. I think he remains a tough at bat. Look, if we if we were having an argument and like this is how most lineup conversations start, is you say, okay, leadoff. Who is the best leadoff hitter? Brandon Nimmo is the best leadoff hitter on the Mets. I agree with Done. that. But but when you if you look at the line the batting order as a whole and you say, what is the first step in constructing a batting order? I think it's let's put our best hitter in the best spot to maximize that hitter. I think Pete Alonso is the Mets' best hitter. I think you'd agree with that. And I think the mm-hmm. best spot to put your best hitter in a modern lineup is the second spot in the order. So but I don't I think, think it's dramatic put- to say Jeff McNeil is relatively close to Alonso for the Mets' best hitter. And if you have McNeil 2 and Alonso 3, I don't think you're losing much. Yeah, I mean, it's a conversation about batting orders. We're talking about, like, hundredths of a run difference uh, in, in how you construct that the That is lineup. a vital hundredth um, of a run, Tim. <laughs> the Mets know the, the difference between hundredths of a run uh, when it comes to a 162-game season at the end. Uh, so, I, look, look if, it's, if the batting order on opening day is Nimmo, McNeil, Alonzo, Davis, or something like that, I'm not, I'm not getting up in arms about anything. I think that's fine. Uh, I just think if, if we're looking for the ideal one, to me, I really – you know, this is against what I would have thought in recent years, but starting a lineup with a guy like McNeil who puts a pitcher on his heels right away uh, and then following that with Alonzo, like we saw the Astros in 2017, and, and you can question the, the results of that, uh, but, you know, starting with Springer, Bregman, Altuve, like, man, that's a, t- like, you're a pitcher and you want to throw a first pitch fastball. That's hard. Uh, we saw the Red Sox do it with Betts uh, in 2018. You know, go, you go back to the Royals with Alcides Escobar and how, just his aggressiveness out of the leadoff spot messed with pitchers a little bit. Uh, and I think McNeil can kind of do the same thing at a higher level than someone like Escobar for sure. So that's what I like about him in the leadoff spot. I think, you know, the gap between him and Nimmo as leadoff hitters is not that great. And I think uh, it's, I, I think Nimmo is capable of impacting the game from other spots in the order. We've seen him hit with some power. Uh, he certainly hits for extra base power. Uh, and, and while the average was low last year, uh, the average was pretty reasonable before that. You know, the average for him uh, is not that different than what it's been for Conforto sometimes. So I, I think to eliminate him, to say he's useless hitting fifth or sixth or something like that, I think is a little reductive. Well, let's have a little fun here. You know, I could say he's useless hitting in the middle of the lineup, and it's a little hyperbole, Tim. You have to take it absolutely, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a thousand percent there. But it does not play to his strengths, in in my view. And he has a clear strength, which is getting on base at the top. So we'll argue about this all year. Eventually, we'll come to blows, and then it'll all be settled. Um, <laughs> otherwise, for the Mets, we, we talk about Conforto's injury. Up to this point, things have been going rather swimmingly as far as the health of this team went. The one exception, perhaps, being reliever Dylan Betances. He threw over the weekend. The velocity was not there, 88 to 90 miles per hour. A wild pitch, a couple of walks, 24 pitches to get through an inning. 
what do we make of where Dylan Betances is? On one hand, hey, it's great. He was finally on a mound after all the injuries of last year, including the partially torn Achilles. But on the other hand, 90 miles per hour is a long way from where Dylan Betances typically is. Yeah, and we'll get a better sense for Betances and where, where he is. He is pitching on Wednesday afternoon, which helps uh, the Mets to an extent to get a, a, a sense of where he is. But that first outing, look, this is a guy who throws 97-98, and when he's 88-90, to 90, you know, he can. He said, like, you know, I usually start spring training a little slow. It takes me some time to build up my velocity, uh, and that's fine. Uh, but you understand also that he's starting this spring training later than usual in terms of getting into games. You know, it was already a week into March before he pitched in a game rather than, you know, late February. Uh, and that the season he's coming off of, there's justifiable reason for greater concern because he missed so much time with the shoulder at the start of the season with the uh, partially torn Achilles at the end. You know, when you get to a certain point in your baseball career, it's uh, the, the patterns for how things have worked for you previously don't play out quite the same way. So you, you worry uh, as a Mets fan, uh, will the velocity, will it take longer for him to build up his velocity? You know, to the point that it's going to get at eventually this season, uh, more than two weeks with, with opening day around the corner now, and will it get back to where it was in the past, or is, are we talking about it getting back to 94-95 instead of 97-98? What does that do to his pitches? What if it's only 92-93? How much does that change who he is as a pitcher and how effective he can be for you? So I think those are the two things to really monitor as they talk about opening day as still the goal for Dylan Batances and whether that's the best thing for him right now. Yeah, I don't mind if it's going to take a little bit longer for Dylan Betances to be ready. But the the other idea that you mentioned that he never gets back to form, even if he's able to pitch for the Mets, but isn't terribly effective. Well, now you look at this bullpen for the Mets and it's the exact same bullpen as they had back in 2019. He was really the only addition that they went out and made. And so now you're looking again at Edwin Diaz and how important it will be for him to be able to close some games or at least pitch well late in close games. Uh, Jerry's Familia hoping that the 30-pound weight loss uh, will be a big positive for him and Seth Lugo. Uh, that's what's scary is that you're right back in the same situation that you were last year, even if, I know you wrote recently, Jerry's Familia feels really good going into this 2020 season. Yeah, I mean, Familia said this is as good as he's felt in spring training in his career, so that's really nice. Uh, he's, he's throwing more of a split change this year than a splitter. It's a little bit wider gap between his fastball and his splitter, uh, which is nice. You still just need to see like the command with with Familia, uh, and you know he's he's walked two and I think four spring innings. It's it's about what you expect from him. Uh, you're hoping that 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 is back where it was really in 2015, 16, uh, 18, uh, rather than than where his his walk rate was in 2019. That really undercut him. The the good news is he's feeling confident, uh, and you could see at times last year. That it just—he was a pitcher going out there who didn't think he could get the job done, uh, and that tends to snowball on a, a reliever in particular. You know, the rest of the bullpen, uh, Diaz—you uh, haven't seen in a spring training game. Uh, look, you know, he, the first game wasn't very good for him. He was fine in the second one. He pitches Wednesday afternoon as well, uh, and then Seth Lugo got on a mound, looked fine. That's that's a, a good step for him coming off the the broken toe. Uh, and then, you know, guys like Brad Brock have looked really good. Justin Wilson's looked really good so far. But it's a bullpen. You, you, it, we could, you know, in the middle of April, I still don't know who's going to be pitching well two weeks from now, let alone in, in March. So a lot of it is hoping that the guys who have talent and have stuff pitch to their capabilities. They didn't last year. 
uh, you really hope they do this year. But that's, you know, that's kind of the fulcrum of their season is how good can this bullpen be for them? Because it could be as good as any in baseball and it could be as bad as any in baseball. And that's how bullpens work. Roll the dice, baby. Mets baseball 2020. I mean, that seems to be what a lot of this is going to come down to because the rotation has looked really strong. I guess I could still say they've been healthy, although we kind of learned our lesson with 60.1 or 61.1 on this uh, this podcast. But uh, anyway, we'll, Mets hoping for more health there in the back end and that interesting competition, of course, with Stephen Mance, Rick Porcello, Michael Walker. We can get more into that. Uh, next podcast, which will be dropping on Friday morning. Now, I, I got to say, Tim, I, I'm sure this goes for you as well. This is probably the longest conversation I've had in a week that has not at some point delved into the coronavirus. So uh, maybe it's a nice escape to talk some Mets baseball for a little while there and for our listeners as well. But this is now a global pandemic, according to the World Health Organization. The idea that there might not be an opening day that there could be baseball, but no fans. Uh, now it's a possibility that they could play games in Florida and in other sites, I suppose, depending on how this virus spreads over the course of the next few weeks. What kind of sense do you get as for what kind of impact uh, it is already having on these major league baseball teams, if any yet at this point where maybe it is just business as usual. Yeah, I, I think for the players themselves, there hasn't been a huge shift. You know, the this week was the first week where they the major league baseball, along with the other professional sports leagues in North America, changed kind of clubhouse access rules to only essential personnel. So pour one out for for the beat. Uh, we're, we're not the media is no longer in the clubhouse uh, before or after games. Uh, and then also like, you know, members of uh, kind of Mets administration and their front office, they've, they've kind of created a hierarchy where if you're below a certain line, like you're not allowed in the clubhouse, uh, they're defining it as essential and inessential personnel, which I feel is always like a harsh way to put it <laughs> like you inessential, you're out. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the what players have heard is basically what all of us have heard, you know, wash your hands and, and try to be as sanitary as possible. A clubhouse obviously is not uh, always the the most hygienic of areas uh, for a lot of, you know, 50 people to be around. Uh, but I think the, the big thing that, you know, and we, we talked about this for like two or three minutes in the uh, podcast that, that no one will ever hear uh, on Monday. I think the thing that's changed since then is we've started to see uh, local governments re restrict large gatherings of people. Uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen uh, I think it was Santa Clara County in California mm -hmm. said no more than a thousand people. So that affects like the San Jose Sharks. Uh, and now I think in Seattle uh, and in Washington, they're saying uh, no gatherings. I think of, of like 250 people or more, which obviously affects the Mariners and other professional sports teams there. Uh, so uh, I think we're getting to the point where certainly there will be some opening days that do not take place as planned, whether that's there are no fans or they're being played elsewhere. And I think we're getting to the point where uh, – even in New York, in City Field, I'd be almost surprised at this point if opening day on March 26th at City Field has a packed house of fans uh, and goes on as usual. Uh, I don't know what the alternative is going to be, whether it's uh, a game at City Field without fans, whether it's a game being played elsewhere, uh, whether it's a game being played at all. I think that I, I expect the game to be played at this point. I don't think we're, we're seeing kind of the 
the biggest option of postponing the season that we've seen in Japan and Korea. But mm-hmm. I think it's it's to, at this point it's it's likelier than not that opening day for the Mets is not normal, uh, and that's that's a very weird thing to contemplate. Even if the government say doesn't restrict large gatherings in New York, and there's still a lot of time, and we've seen how quickly things have developed over just the the last couple of weeks. And you think about two weeks is a long time now to try to forecast looking ahead to opening day. But even if there weren't any restrictions on people you got to think fans some of them would make the decision maybe it's not a good idea to be in a large gathering even if it were to be outside now that I think that's part of what Ohio has talked about where they want to restrict indoor events but outdoor events they're a little more okay with but again I mean two weeks is a really long time to try to look ahead and determine any of this but I agree with you with the path that this is going that Opening day will not be business as usual, even if it's 75 and sunny and a beautiful day in late March and the kind of opening day that you dream of. It it, it certainly seems like we're hurtling towards, I mean, obviously, uncharted territory here if we're not there already. Yeah, and, and I don't know if Major League Baseball would want to have some sort of blanket policy eventually or if, they, if, if, if the league, I, I, I think, they would prefer, obviously, everything to go on as normal. Uh, I don't know if the preference is, uh, okay, Seattle has to make changes that maybe they're playing without fans or they're playing at, at their spring training facility in Arizona or at Chase Field or something, but everything else can go on as, as planned. Uh, I don't know if eventually you reach a point where you say, okay, there are enough places affected by this. We're just everywhere that we have Major League Baseball is going to be played without fans or something like that. Mm. I, I don't know what the tipping point is for that kind of decision. Well, I I do think one of the next turning points, and this is going to happen, is when an athlete tests positive for the coronavirus, whether it be in Major League Baseball or another sport, to me, that'll be the next game changer. And then you'll have players deciding whether or not they want to continue to play. I mean, there's only so much you could do. From what I've read, the virus cannot spread through sweat. But obviously, if you're all touching the same ball, whether it be baseball, basketball, you name it, and then you touch your face, think about pitchers on the mound licking their fingers uh, consistently throughout a game. I mean, it, it is a pretty easy way for this virus to start to transmit amongst athletes on the field. And to me, that'll be the next game changer with all this. And we see some politicians in quarantine now at the very least people that shake hands with a lot of different people as athletes are want to do signing autographs and I understand that the leagues have kind of taken some precautions here to limit the exposure of their athletes to large groups of people and fans and media and and things of that nature but with how contagious this virus seems to be uh, I, I think that'll be the the next big thing I mean even the Warriors this weekend, Steph Curry was out with the flu, and they made a point of saying in their release that he does not have COVID-19. So there is already this concern that it's going to spread to athletes. And again, I think that'll be the next game changer for these leagues to decide, are we going to continue to play the games even if there are no fans and they've taken all these other precautions? Right, like I, I saw a story about a, a fan, I think at the BYU-Gonzaga game a couple weeks ago has, has since tested positive, and something like that pushes you to change kind of how you how you view gatherings of fans. But yeah, if, if it gets into the clubhouse uh, and into different clubhouses, then that, that really changes and accelerates the pace of uh, slowing things down, I guess. 
Well, obviously, a, a situation that we will continue to monitor with the coronavirus as well as uh, just about everybody else. Uh, we will finish with some, some Mets news here. Joanna Cespedes, Tim, uh, an update earlier this week after there hadn't been a, a whole lot. What point is Cespedes out now? And based on where he is, is there any kind of a timetable yet as to when we can see him at the very least play left field or run the bases? Yeah, so he's he's kind of picked up the intensity of his base running drills. He's running full speed to first base, but he's not yet turning. You know, he's, he's not doing the, the full uh, drills that other guys on the team are doing. Uh, so that's that's a step in a positive direction. But I think the, the pace of his progress has been a bit slower than maybe we thought it could be at the start of spring training when we saw, you know, seeing him in the batter's box, he looks pretty good. You know, he's been on the backfields taking live batting practice against major league pitchers, sim games against uh, the likes of Jacob deGrom and Marcus Stroman and those guys when they stay back. So uh, he's looked good offensively and you can imagine him being a productive major league player uh, as a hitter. It's just, we still haven't seen him. uh, I haven't really seen him run full speed yet myself. Uh, We've heard he's done that uh, and we haven't seen him at all in the outfield. And I think you're still a little bit away from that. And that's, that's the big step for him is getting him to that point. And then that's when he becomes a viable major league option, because as we've talked about they're they're a national league team. Uh, Maybe you can carry him as just a pinch hitter for some period of time. I don't know if you can do that for the entire season, uh, but uh, unless he can show you that he's capable of being he doesn't have to be a great outfielder. Certainly, the Mets have shown us year after year that you don't mm-hmm. have to be a great outfielder to play the outfield for them. Uh, but th- he's got to be able to at least stand out there and chase down something uh, before you're able to put him in a major league lineup. And be able to stay healthy while he does that because it only takes one play to set him back, and it's not just all these surgeries that he's coming back from, but he had countless quad and hamstring strains issues over the years even before these things, even if – uh, the heel problems were kind of a cause. I would I would think that uh, that's got to be a, a concern with Cespedes still moving forward here. All right, our next podcast will drop as scheduled on Friday morning, episode number 62. Uh, 62 in Mets history, not exactly a dynamic number. Eric Goodell, uh, Drew Smith currently wears number 62 for the Mets. So I think this will be one where we cheat, Tim. And we go back to 1962. The first edition of the New York Mets, and what a marvelous year it was, 40 and 120. This is, uh, this is the, the number we've been waiting for so that we could do this. It gives us another option. Uh, and it, you know, th- this podcast is coming out just right around a Thursday, which, which fits because the, the 62 Mets never won on a Thursday. <laughs> which is a wild stat to me. I think they were like 0-12 on Thursdays. Uh, and I'm going to call an audible from what we said, uh, or what I said, I guess, earlier this week in the podcast that shall be, remain unaired. Uh, and I'm going to go with, I'm going to steal your thunder. I'm going to steal your choice that you yelled at me for not picking last Just time. Just do it. Yeah. And I'm going to go with Marv Throneberry because yeah, you, 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 you make the case. You're better at it than I am. Well, I just, I love the stories that come out of Marvelous Marv Thronberry. Now, I don't know all of them, but one of my favorite baseball stories I've ever heard is Marv Thronberry uh, hits a triple in some game, and the other team appeals that he missed second base, and the umpire calls him out. So Casey Stengel runs out of the dugout to argue. He goes by the first base coach. The first base coach says to him, Casey, don't bother. You know, what do you mean? 
He's like, he missed first base too. <laughs> I mean, it's just like ridiculous. And there are a, a billion stories about Marv Thronberry in that way. And it's just, I mean, that is the 62 bets. <laughs> just it wasn't pretty. It, it, it sums them up so perfectly. <laughs> so here, it, I'll, I'll read it from the Times because I don't even have all the details as well. So it's a, this is in his obit. Uh, and Marv Thronberry passed back in 1994. So the New York Times obit, a game against the Cubs, he hit what appeared to be a game-winning triple with the bases loaded and two outs. The problem was that everybody in the dugout noticed he missed touching first base when the Cubs pitcher tossed the ball to the first baseman. The umpire called Thronberry out. The inning ended. The runs didn't count. Stengel came out to argue. Argued with the first base umpire, and then another umpire walked over and said, Casey, I hate to tell you this, but he also missed second. <laughs> so I had I a detail or two a... wrong there. Bases clearing triple, too. That's, that's really I mean, what really... I would have won really... the game. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, yeah, 62 Mets instead of 41 and 119. That uh, one of the reasons, 40 and 120, one of the – all-time awful seasons but it it just made the story that much better when they rose to prominence in the miracle mets of 1969 that's the way you got to think about it so uh you know the 62nd episode coming up on friday morning and we'll have that one to you on time i promise uh for tim Britton, i'm pete mccarthy always a pleasure my friend pleasure's mine pete adios